Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We spend a lot of time talking about challenges for markets and where to find opportunities in this podcast. And it's worth considering that even the best in the world also grapple with these questions every day. So when you have people all over the world and incredible resources at your fingertips, what are the key issues that you're preparing for? Today I'm joined by Amit Loder, Portfolio Manager of the Fidelity Global Equities Fund. Amit manages billions of dollars on behalf of millions of investors, and he's here to talk about what he's looking toward in 2020. Amit, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So most investors understand that the extraordinary bull run we've experienced over the last 10 years has to come to an end at some point. All good things must come to an end. But the US in particular just keeps climbing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's fascinating what we've seen in the markets. Um, if you look at uh, and you know, if you just go back a bit and if you look at the decade of the two thousands, it was really all about China. Uh, the largest companies in the world were all about China. If you looked at the companies which did really well in Australia, for example, it was PHPs and the Rios of the world. Uh, the largest companies were Exxon and GE. Anyone selling anything to China was the flavor of the month or the decade, if you can call it that. Uh, if you look at this decade. It's only been about technology. If you look at the largest companies in the world, it's the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons and the Alibabas and the Tencent. So this decade has really been all about technology. Um, you know, this is interesting to me because every decade, and we're you know 34 days away when we're recording this uh, to the next decade. Uh, so every decade, things change, and I guess. My thinking on this is that we as investors need to maintain a certain degree of flexibility. Uh, The next decade could look very different from the current decade. There are lots of things which are changing as we speak. Um, You know, if you look at things going on around the world, uh, the rise of Corbyn in the UK, um, what's going on with the Bernie Sanders Warren campaign, um, you know, issues of inequality, reforming capitalism. These will have serious impacts on the world in general, but also investing in particular. So I really anticipate that we as investors, we need to be very flexible when we look at our investment solutions, our, uh, our investment picks for the decade of the 20s. And it could be that you would find value outside the United States of America in markets like India, markets like China, even in markets like Europe. If you look at this bull run, U.S. is now one of the most expensive markets globally, simply because of how well technology is done, Uh, whereas you're finding some really good value in markets, in emerging markets, and in in Europe, and actually in the U.K., given, you know, we've been going through this tough period of Brexit, so the market's been given up for debt. It's it's an extraordinary period. It's quite fascinating to observe some of the macro changes that you guys have been drawing people's attention to. What are the flags that you're looking out for that would indicate a real turn in sentiment, uh, sorry, sentiment, uh, rather than sort of these big macro changes? Yeah, that's, um, you know, there's such a data overload, I find, uh, with, um, you know, daily sentiment changes and Twitter trackers, that uh, the data overload on everybody on a day-to-day basis to manage all the ups and downs of the market has become really, really difficult. Um, You know, I think this 
I think goes back to, to a very fundamental question of you know how I think about where our edge lies in the market. Um, the big change that we've seen over the last 10 years is that technology has even permeated the market. So if you take algorithms, machine learning, they're all out there competing for the millisecond trades uh, and trying to get the next quarter right. Uh, so in my process, I kind of tend to think that, you know, let's move towards where there is less competition. Where is there less competition? It's in the investment horizons of three to five years where things are a bit more uncertain. And that's where I think we as investors need to focus in terms of getting the answers right. So so my uh, sense would be that we should stop trying to play the short game because I think the battle's already lost to the machines over there and really focus on playing the long game where there is less competition, more uh, chances of adding real alpha and performance for for us as investors. Uh, if I look at you know what I think in terms of uh, near term sentiment issues or things that we should be tracking, what I find is I think we should be focusing a lot on the fixed income markets. Um, that is where to me the real bubbles lie. I don't think there is a bubble in the equity markets. Yes, there may be some sectors here or there which are too expensive, maybe some areas in technology which could be a bit more expensive, maybe beyond meat kind of new food ideas and things like that. But generally, the markets don't seem that expensive. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at the bond markets, you know, 25% of sovereign bonds around the world are negative yielding which has meant this real chase for yield across the fixed income markets. And uh, as an observer, what I find fascinating is that if you look at equity market participants, what have we done you know, through even this year? We've been very defensively positioned. If you look at the best performing sectors globally, they've been real estate, utilities, consumer staples, healthcare. You know, these are very defensive sectors. The worst performing sectors are energy and materials and industrials. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at my fixed income colleagues, because of this real chase for yield, uh, you know, they've been focused on the high yield part of the market, you know, companies which are levered up to five times EV by EBITDA. In fact, the average leverage in the fixed income high yield market is five times EV by EBITDA. Uh, so you have this real anomaly in my view where you know fixed income markets used to be the markets where you used to go for safety and defensive and they are the most aggressively positioned and equity markets was where you went for aggressive positioning and they're the most defensively positioned so that's you know quite interesting you know just as an independent observer of the markets so the sentiment turn that i would suggest that we as investors monitor would be the turn in the fixed income markets you know five times leverage is a very high number but that's you know pretty stable for the course uh, in in terms of how things go but if we get into even a garden variety recession where earnings go down say maybe between 10 15 20 percent so i'm not talking about 2008 but just in normal recession you would see leverage going up to about six to seven times in the high yield market now that would be higher leverage than what we saw in 2009 in 2001 or 1991 recessions. So my advice to anyone investing in equity markets would be monitor the fixed income markets because that is where the amber and the red flags will first fly. That's an absolutely fascinating point and that that really fascinating divergence in fixed income markets where you've got people paying to have their money held by somebody else for 30-year terms, which is a quarter of the market. So I'm happy to take no income uh, and effectively a loss on my capital over these extensive periods. And then other people leveraging to the eyeballs. It's quite 
quite fascinating. Yeah, and it's, it's extraordinary because, you know, if you're a contrarian investor today, you want to be aggressively positioned because everyone is defensively positioned. If you look at the inflows uh, into the fixed income markets, they've been the strongest uh, for the longest period of time. You know, corporate bonds have seen tremendous inflows. On the other hand, global equities uh, around the world have seen consistent outflows. So there is no sentiment peak. You know, there is no mad bull rush happening in the equity land because people are still taking money out and putting it into fixed income. In fact, what's been fascinating for me to see is I've seen some fixed income funds, especially the high yield variety, actually starting to buy equities because they can see much better value in equities than they can see in their own world, which is just fascinating. I have never seen that before, and I suspect plenty of other people probably ribbing each other down at the pub about that. <laughs> the equities guys going, you finally crossed over, finally you see what we see. Yeah, that's, that's true. So you've made some comments about the major political ructions occurring in the developed world, so the US and the UK particularly, with forthcoming elections and the implications that they hold for investors. How does that affect how you're positioning portfolios? This is a definitely an area that we've been spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, I think there is real change going on in the geopolitics around the world, and the geopolitical uncertainty is really, I think, the driver behind why people feel so squeamish in terms of putting money into equities versus bonds, because there is just so much uncertainty around. You know, if you see the Twitter feed of Donald Trump, I mean, you can't sleep. <laughs> he doesn't sleep. Uh, so, you know, these are causing uh, a lot of angst, but I think there are some real fundamental issues that if you're investing with a three to five to ten year horizon that you have to think about, which is that I think there is a real rise in socialism. If you look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and their appeal to the youth, it's, it's real. You can see that in the data that we look at, in all the polling data, that they're really appealing to the youth in terms of their policies and their promises. Um, there has been a lot of commentary around reforming capitalism, and I think there is more to come over there. Uh, I think climate change and ESG are significant issues that we will have to spend a lot more time in the decade of the 20s than we have spent in the decade of the 10s thinking about. So there's, I think, some real change going on in, in terms of how the world looks and how it will look um, in the next decade. In fact, one of the things we've been doing at Fidelity is really running a book club um, around encouraging our analyst team and our investment professionals to actually read up on socialism and read up on the policies of socialism and, and why a lot of people think that this is this is something that is real and important because it will have an impact on how companies manage their businesses, uh, how things you know work towards the future. I think there are two things that we as investors really need to think about. One is that I think the trade issues, while we may get a short-term resolution, are not going away from a longer-term perspective. Um, I think there's a real risk uh, and I agree with a comment made by Michael O'Sullivan, who's written this really interesting book, The Leveling, which is where he's calling for the end of globalization, um, saying that the world will become a tripolar world where you'll have the West, uh, which is the US. Um, you will have the non-aligned West, which is you know countries like uh, Germany and Europe who don't really want to align with the US bloc. And then you will see China. And, you know, China has Russia and Africa and parts of Africa around it, you know, the one belt, one road. And these will become almost three different markets, which will be closed markets that we we'll need to think about. And actually, if you come to think about it, the Internet has already splintered 
in that fashion because if you look at the big tech companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, they're not present in China. And similarly, the Chinese internet companies like Alibaba and Tencent are not present in the Western world. So you've already seen that splintering in the internet space. And I, you could argue that this is a lead indicator of what we might see in the rest of the world. So that's, I think, one thing, especially related to the trade issues that, that we definitely need to think about. The other issue that I think we need to spend a lot of time thinking about is that I think monetary policy from, from an overall perspective um, is now a spent force. That was the story of the 2010s. I think the 2020s will be about real helicopter money, a lot of fiscal spending, uh, the end of austerity and getting people really what they want, which is what you know the promise of socialism and a lot of the uh, Corbyn, Bernie Sanders uh, pronouncements tend towards. And maybe we don't have that in, in this election, but in the 2024 election, maybe that's something that we need to spend a lot more time thinking about. This is a paradigm change because if you think about the decade of the 2010s, we've been thinking about deflation. And maybe in the next decade, we need to think a lot more about inflation and, and the issues around inflation because of this money spending which will start coming up again. Um, so I think it, it may not be all change, but there is definitely likely to be a lot of change. And as a portfolio manager, uh, the best thing that I can do is you know almost have a flight path of these different scenarios. And as these different scenarios unfold, as I see the probabilities increasing in one direction, basically tweak my portfolio into that direction. And so that's that's what I'm doing at this point of time. Everything you've raised is fascinating. And I think there are many people who are considering those different outcomes, but the flight paths look dramatically different. So how do you frame up a portfolio thesis that says, if we go down this path, we've got a plan. If we go down this path, do you have your plans in place years in advance? Do you work towards them as sort of there's a drop-dead date of an election? How do you work towards those things? Yeah, I think um, maybe think about it in two simple ways. Number one is that we are investors in companies. And if the world is changing, the importance of a great management team will only increase. So the number one thing that we look at when we're making an investment is, is the management team competent enough to understand the changing dynamics, the disruption, and manage in that scenario? And that's, I think, really what, what a great management team is all about. You know, Satya Nadella, uh, the CEO of Microsoft, had a great quote where he talked about technology and the race in technology almost uh, akin to a Formula One race. And he makes the point that, you know, when you're in a Formula One race, you don't win by how fast you go down the fairway, but how well you take the turns. And disruption is those turns. And so management teams who are well-equipped and are thinking about these turns and are taking these turns smartly are the management teams that we want to invest in. So I think that's point number one. So you've got to find your managers and hold on to them because they will help you navigate this changing environment. Number two, I think if you're thinking of it more from an industry perspective, there will be certain industries which will do well under these scenarios, uh, which may not have done well over the past few years. If there's a lot of, for example, fiscal stimulus, industries of your like the commodity sector might do well and it's not done anything for the last few years. Uh, and number three, when you're thinking about it from a country perspective, I would say look out for Switzerland's. You know, countries which are not aligned 
which have products to sell or services to sell, which will be bought by all three parties. And you know, great example that I have in my portfolio is Ericsson. Um, now Ericsson makes mobile equipment, all right? Um, the world is now divided up into two parts, which is Ericsson and Nokia in the Western world and Huawei and ZT in, in, the, uh, in, in the Chinese world. And historically, most telecom operators like Telstra in Australia have, uh, have bought equipment from both. But now you will see a change where you'll buy equipment only from the likes of Ericsson. So Ericsson is almost like a Swiss service provider, which is okay to provide services to everyone around the world. And it will likely gain in market share over a period of time. So if you can find the Switzerlands of the world where money will flow, where capital will flow to protect itself from all the changes going around in various parts of the world, I think you might do well with your portfolios. That's a terribly useful uh, perspective for a lot of people, I think, uh, when we're trying to pick a winner, trying to pick someone who's frankly agnostic as to who the winner might be, might be much easier. Exactly. I think you put it beautifully, much better than me. (laughs) Um, So you've also suggested uh, that past performance is no guide to future performance. These decades with almost a singular theme, a really dramatic theme that has been... uh, very material to returns. What are the big trends that you see that will drive performance over the coming decade? Um, I think, you know, there is so much interesting going on um, in the world at this point of time um, that, uh, you know, I think if, if, you, if the world is your oyster to invest in, I think you've got interesting uh, businesses and management teams coming up in all sectors and all countries. Um, I'll give you some examples of areas where, where I'm finding a lot of interest. Uh, healthcare in one, is one area, uh, which I think is very nicely positioned. As we look out into the future, we see the demographic challenges, but also the fact that technology is making a huge impact in healthcare. Um, Illumina is is a company that I own in my portfolio. It is the the you know it's got the highest market share. If you ever decide to get your DNA read or your gene mapped, uh, the tools that 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 mapping will happen on will be an Illumina tool. You know, nine times out of ten. Um, and I think that change that you've seen over the past 10 years is just phenomenal. You know, 10 years back or in 2001, if you take the number, it used to cost you $10 million to map your gene. Today, you're doing it for less than $1,000. That rate of change is faster than Moore's law, which is, you know, the law that everyone cites is one which, uh, which, is, which tells you the pace of technological change. So there is a real change uh, with the impact of technology in in that. And what that basically will do, in my view, is over the next few years, we'll see a lot more personalization of medicine, which is, you know, people call it precision medicine. Today, we have a, a mass market product, which is that if you're taking Panadol, if you've got a headache, you will take Panadol, everyone will take Panadol. But Panadol may not work for you in the, the same efficacy that it may work for me because my physique is different, you know, my my body makeup is different. But we don't address that yet. But having our gene mapped, having a source code of your DNA 
will allow doctors over time to give you the right medication which is right for your own disease and your own body type. And I think this is going to be a massive change in medicine over the next 10 to 15 years. So I'm looking for companies which are playing on this, are going to ride this wave because I think this wave is going to be very, very strong. And we already see early signs of that. If you look at what's happening in cancer, in oncology, uh, immunotherapy is a lot about that, which is today if you have cancer, if you have lung cancer, you will not likely get the same drugs. The doctor will check for your uh, biomarkers, they'll check for what kind of cancer you have, and then we'll find the drug tailored to that, which will help your immune system to fight that cancer better. So we've definitely gone from a mass market drug to a drug basically catered for a few. And what I think will happen will be a drug catered for the one. And that development, that personalization in medicine, I think will be really powerful over the next 10 to 15 years. That's an extraordinary uh thought I think for so many people it's obviously a first world solution do you look at the uh, availability of medicine for developing countries as well and think about how it might impact them or is that less likely to have dramatic change no I think you know the the one thing that technology always does um, which is why I'm such a big fan of technology in general is democratization uh, you know, this is what the iPhone did. It put, a, it put a computer in every pocket, and that's democratization. And you see that uh, with the growth in uh, mobile usage in markets like China, markets like India. I mean, you know, I was traveling through China the other day, um, and, you know, they don't even use credit cards. I mean, you have to pay with your phones. You know, if, if, uh, if you're asking to pay with a credit card, someone will be fishing under the counter, you know, bring out a machine and it'll be all dusty because they don't use it. So the pace of change that we see when prices go down because of technology coming in and democratization of, of that technology, I think that's a massive positive for emerging markets because they will actually leapfrog the the technology that we've seen in the West and will come to the latest technology much sooner. If you look at what's going on with 5G, for example, China's likely to implement 5G before Australia for sure. Uh, and that's that's massive. It's, uh, you tell the story about being in China and everyone using their phones to pay for things. Oh, I was in China, I want to say about 15 years ago, doing a, uh, it was a charity walk uh, on the Great Wall. And it's a very, very, very long way out uh, from sort of industrialised areas. And there were these guys up there repairing the walk because it was all, you know, in, in massive disrepair in lots of places. You can't actually cross it and all mm. this kind of stuff. And you'd see these guys working with really rudimentary tools in the middle of nowhere, working really hard. And then they'd pull out their phone and send a message to their wife or whatever and then put it back in their pocket and keep working. Yes. It astonished me even then. That was before smartphones. It was amazing. You know, I think the, the dichotomies of uh, how growth happens in some of these markets... Uh, like Africa, like China, like India, just in terms of mobile penetration, in terms of how cheap data is. And I bet you this, you know, I, I actually can say this with full certainty that mobile phone speeds in China are better than what you have here in Australia. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, yeah, no, we're, we're a little bit behind, I think. Yeah, I think we need a real upgrade here. Uh, you know, I know the Ericsson uh, management team well, so if anyone's interested, let me know. <laughs> You'll have a word with them for us. Yeah. That'd be great. So you've talked quite a bit about some of these big changes and you've mentioned some of the companies that you think are going to thrive in this changing environment. Are there other types of businesses that you think have the potential to do really well as the world continues to change? 
you know, I think the, the basic factors that we look for um, in companies that we are looking to invest in are really threefold. One is strong management teams. We, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the culture, the capital allocation, discipline, and really the fact that, you know, the company should have a purpose, which is a force for good. And I think that ensures the longevity of, of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, the second thing that we look for is is a good industry, a good industry structure. So, a growing industry which has some uh, tailwinds behind it. So, healthcare as an example, which is you know tailwinds of uh, of demographics uh, behind it. Um, you have a very good structure in terms of IP protection, where you know if you come up with a new drug. Uh, and you are protected for a period of time, you have a period of time where you can earn uh, some good profits, which you can reinvest back in the business to create the next drug. Uh, so very uh, you know, strong industry structures. And the third thing that we look for is reasonable valuations. You know, We're not here in the game of just buying the best management teams and the best companies in the world. Ultimately, we need to make returns for our shareholders. And the only way you make returns is if you buy stocks below their intrinsic value. And you know, that's, again, what we, we tend to focus on. And I think if you stay with these three principles, continue to look for industries which have tailwinds. You know, for example, I think robotics is another area which will see a lot of tailwinds. Um, you know, two years back, I thought there was a bubble in, in the robotics space. But, you know, now I think given that we've been through this manufacturing recession, a lot of stocks have come, uh, you know, back down. And so they look interesting. Uh, that would be one sector which I would say has some good potential. A lot of Japanese stocks there which, which do some, you know, unique stuff on the robotic side. Um, if I had to think about, you know, moonshots, I'd say, um, you know, how companies use artificial intelligence, how they use new technologies uh, in machine learning, in just improving the customer service, in improving their products, in strengthening their modes is, is something that you know, we're very focused on and thinking about. So again, going back to management teams, we like to work with management teams who have a sense of how they can use technology to improve their position in the industry. You and I were talking about a, uh, a television series we were watching uh, called Dirty Money, if anyone's interested. Absolutely fascinating, some extraordinary things that have gone on. You've talked about management teams quite a few times, and one of the things that came out of that series for me was just how incredibly poor people are at judging management teams. You're very, very high-quality, well-regarded managers ploughing enormous amounts of money into companies where the management teams are doing really dodgy things, um, and we've had some recent experiences in Australia where management teams have been held to account for things that maybe no one was very keen on. Uh, how do you look at that? How do you assess management teams for the quality of the individuals in there and the culture that you're looking to assess? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a really fascinating question. We could spend hours talking about it because that is an area that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, I'd say the first principle is that nobody's perfect and we're not looking for perfection. You know, this is just like you cannot find perfection in a spouse, I very much doubt <laughs> you'll find perfection in the management team that you're investing in. There's always going to be a balance of factors that, that you need to look for. Um, so, you know, when we are investing with managers, we're trying to get a sense of, uh, you know, the culture that they're trying to grow in the organization. Um, you know, one of the examples that I always give is, you know, Amazon used to be a big position for me about three or four years back. And it was this time where everyone was questioning their, their employee 
behavior and you know whether you know they were really employee friendly but actually if you visit the amazon offices in seattle it is one of the few offices that you will see a lot of dogs in the office so amazon really allows you to bring your pets to work and it's the most fascinating office because as you walk in there is the reception and there is a counter next to the reception where you've got dog biscuits and you know dog food which you can pick up for your dogs and it's to me you know those kind of visits give you a sense that you know there is something you read in the press and that may not be really what is representative because you know if i i personally believe i'm a dog lover i personally believe that if i can take my pet to work i'd be a happy worker uh and so you know it's a company which is thinking about these kind of things uh if you take microsoft um as a case in point you know when satya nadella took over he changed the the purpose and the mission statement for the organization the mission statement for microsoft used to be a computer on every desk or you know something like that which is kind of very old world and he changed it to to something to the effect and you know i hopefully i get the direction right here of helping everyone in the world achieve their purpose through technology and i think that's a much more you know 21st century kind of purpose which is you know we want to be the technology company that enables you to be successful uh, and then when you meet people throughout the entire organization you can see that they are behind that mission behind that that success and so you know this is the kind of work that we do it it's it's not something that you will see in an excel spreadsheet but it requires intensive meeting with companies not only spending time with the ceo and the cfo who generally tend to be very well coached but also spending time throughout the entire organization meeting with competitors meeting with suppliers if you can find competitors and suppliers who respect what the company is doing you know that's a massive tick if you can speak to ex employees and they have only good things to say that's again a massive tick so you know those are the kind of things that that we look out for and also we follow people so you know we tend to see you know where people are moving so you know one of the things that i saw recently for example which caught my interest and it's a portfolio holding is you know the head of search from google a very senior executive moved to apple and that you know makes you think because you know if you are the top person in artificial intelligence you know what better company to work with then google because this is the pinnacle of knowledge but if they have decided to make a career change to apple you know that should catch your attention that should make you ask the question as to what does apple have in mind what is the plan and why is really google losing this employee to 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 apple so you know those are the kind of questions that we tend to focus on that we tend to try and answer to give us a better sense of that management team and and the management ethos capital allocation discipline um to to get a sense of the companies that we want to stick with There are such good answers. It um it's such a tricky thing uh, assessing people. I also read Malcolm Gladwell's latest latest book which is called Talking with Strangers yes. and it's literally just about how terrible we are at judging other people. So the idea that you assess management not just on what they say but what the people around them have to say and the people who work for them with them and against them is very interesting. I think you always need to look for dissonance. You know, you need to look for information which does not confirm your thesis. So, you know, the first thing that I look for uh when I'm buying a stock is the sell rated notes on the stock. You know, so there must be some sell siders 
who have a negative view and to understand why they have that negative view is very important. So, you know, I find too much today in the world of Facebook and Instagram that we are all living in our own echo chambers and we're not interacting with the other opinion. You know, there's ideological divides between socialism and capitalism and the twain should never meet. But I think the real world, you have to try and find the grays, you know, where, where things meet between black and white. And that's, that's where I think we need to spend more time. The, everything you've said I think is really fascinating and also so valuable for investors to think about. You know, it's a complex world we live in and we're all awful at predicting the future, to be frank. You know, this year has been fascinating for me. In Australia anyway, most, most pundits were predicting two interest rate increases. We've had three decreases and they were expecting at least a flat year for the ASX, maybe down, but dividends would get you over the line and the market's up. Uh, to a record high and uh, about 18%, 19% for the year. So pretty much everybody was wrong. Yes. And <laughs> I think that's, uh, you know, Peter Lynch, um, who's one of, uh, you know, the mentors at Fidelity for all of us, used to have this great quote that if you spent, uh, you know, 13 minutes in a year on either forecasting or economics, you mm. alwe- already wasted 10 that's beautiful so yeah so thinking about how you can position your portfolio and yourself for the future considering that it may play out in many different ways is incredibly valuable pinning yourself to to one outcome that you believe is most likely I think brings a lot of us unstuck the worst possible outcome for our investors anyway is to sit on the sideline because it's too uncertain so that's the other thing we recommend people don't do yeah I think you know uh, there is a real issue for retirees for example you know you can't live on one percent I mean this is the real tragedy of uh, what central bank interest rate policy has been for a lot of people who've retired who thought they'd saved enough for their retirements and when interest rates are so low they realize that they're having to eat out of capital um, you know, what are the right solutions for them, how they should think about investing, you know, how they should think about investing in equity funds, which don't give the same kind of volatility because they don't have, uh, you know, probably the the risk appetite given their age at this point of time are all very important questions that I think we as equity investors or asset allocators need to really answer for them given the interest rate environment. Yeah, we get that question from investors all the time. And Australian investors do tend to be very wedded to a fairly small subset of stocks that pay high, fully frank dividends and have used that as their strategy to cope, is probably the best word, uh, through a really low interest rate environment. But they're questioning that strategy quite a bit, having seen rather more volatility than they were comfortable with in that small subset of stocks. Yeah, I think, you know, there is a, a good analogy here, which is, you know, if you take a mining company like uh, Rio Tinto or BHP, um, you know, they're in the extractive industry. So if they're paying out a lot of cash flows to you today, that's because they are basically borrowing from the future. And so they need to take a percentage of the cash flows that they're earning from their mines and reinvest in finding new mines and developing new mines to make sure that that cash flow profile is sustainable. So just looking at the current dividend paying ability of the company is not enough. You've got to look at the future dividend paying ability of the company. And actually, fascinatingly, the same holds true for healthcare which is, you know, most healthcare companies are also in the extractive industry of making sure that, you know, they extract as much value from the drugs which are patent protected. But if they only do that 
and don't invest in innovation and in finding new drugs, then that company will not be around in three years or five years' time. And so, you know, that dividend yield may look at like it's going to 12 or 14%, but the market's telling you that's because that's not sustainable. And I think that message is something that investors also need to think about. I think a lot of Australian investors have learned that the hard way. You know, a lot of them were heavily invested in Telstra. Telstra is very popular. Uh, and also all the banks. And it's also true for banking, right? If you're not investing in your technology platforms because everyone interacts with banks very differently, small cohorts still go into a branch, but the vast majority of people want to use their phone and they want to use internet banking and all sorts of other technology platforms. Financials need to invest very heavily in that stuff to keep up, let alone be ahead of the curve on it. Yeah. And uh, and if your dividend payout ratio is ninety five percent, then you're probably not getting the reinvestment that you were hoping for. That is true. Uh, and you know, this is in some ways uh, what we see. So you know, one of the the rulers that we judge. Uh, banks and financial companies on is is really how they're thinking about their technology spend. So JP Morgan, for example, is the leader here, has been spending $9 billion annually on new technology. And this is because Jamie Dimon, the CEO, realized that, you know, there is a massive technological wave coming. So if you look at, you know, post the crisis where most banks were in deleveraging mode, JP Morgan was aggressively spending on technology through that entire time frame. And, you know, it was making itself future ready. So that's, I think, the key question that investors, even if they're looking for yield, need to answer, which is, is the management team making sure that it is future ready? If it is, then that dividend is sustainable and you're fine. But if it is not, then you have a problem and you've got to make sure that you think about it. That's a brilliant point and completely true for older investors as well. A lot of our older investors don't feel that growth in inverted commas is something they have to factor into their plans. But if the company is going to cut its dividend and likely suffer a fairly significant stock price reduction as well, then you need to ensure that uh, you've thought about whether or not they had any growth profile at all when you were in there. Yeah, I know one very you know famous investor uh, at Fidelity, Anthony Bolton, um, used to say to us that investing, uh, everyone thinks it's about the brain. It's not really about the brain, it's about the stomach. <laughs> I think that's a very good, very good statement, true for all of yeah. us. Uh, one of the things we were discussing earlier and something you've recently sent out, which I think is fabulous, is the list of books you've recently read that have prompted thoughts for you, that are helping you think differently, that you think are giving great insights into markets and also into economics and politics and everything else. Can you give us a few of the, uh, the more interesting ones you've seen? Yeah, uh, I've read some really interesting books this year. One of the things that, you know, as I said, we've been focused on is on socialism. So, you know, there are about two or three that I'd recommend if you are interested in that topic. Uh, Number one is The Leveling by Michael Sullivan. He talks about the end of globalization and what we need to do to reimagine a new world order. I think it's a fascinating read uh, because it puts together all the world issues of inequality, central bank monetary policies, what's going on in politics, what's going on in trade wars together. So I think that's that's definitely recommended. The other one uh, is a quite a mouthful. It's a fully automated luxury communism. It's one of the <laughs> best book titles I've heard this year. 
and it's a fascinating read by Aaron Bastani. He's um, uh, he's writing on a utopian world where uh, socialism will rule because energy will be free because of renewables, food will be free because we'll be producing it not out of meat, um, uh, labor will be free because of robotics, uh, intelligence will be free because of data. So he's making some really interesting points about utopia and it's, it's, it's worth engaging with that book and why socialism therefore is the right uh, structure for that. Uh, the third one in, in, in that domain is the meritocracy trap. Uh, this is written by a Yale professor, and he makes a phenomenal argument, I think, about inequalities, which is the way we are now thinking about inequalities is about wealth inequalities. But what do we all do in the middle class is we are actually transferring that wealth inequality through generations by the human capital that we invest in our children. So if you take most people, you know, they're taking them to piano lessons and soccer games. But you can do that because you have wealth today. And that's why you can invest in your children. And so there's an underlying privilege to merit, which we all need to think about. And that perpetuates over time. So that inequality issue that we're all concerned about will not go only away if with taxation, but we've got to think about it more from a holistic perspective. And I think it's a very well-argued uh, book on that subject. Uh, maybe one more, uh, more kind of general reading is, is a book uh, which I've enjoyed recently called Range. Uh, this is written by David Epstein. Uh, and David's making the point, uh, you know, going back to your point on Malcolm Gladwell, everyone mm. knows his 10,000 hour rule. Mm. Um, you know, that if you spend time doing one thing for 10,000 hours, you become an expert. Mm. And uh, David's really arguing the other side of the case uh, through some really good analogies of sports players. He's got an example of Roger Federer over there. Uh, he's got some examples of um, uh, music players in the 1700s from Venice and how they learned instruments. So the reason, you know, this book was, was very interesting to me is, you know, my daughter uh, is uh, learning the piano, learning the flute and learning the violin. And I was thinking that's way too much. You know, she should just kind of cut down and focus on one, going back to the 10,000 hour rule. Uh, and one of the things that the book cites is that if you're learning music, it is better to learn a range of instruments because your ear is sharpened by the number of instruments that you learn. And if you look at most classical players like Mozart, they played a range of instruments. So this specialization works in certain domains where the rules are set. But if the rules are not set, like in music, there are no rules. And I would argue in life today, there don't seem to be any rules. In that environment, players with range actually tend to do much better. So that's another book that I'd highly recommend. That's a brilliant combination. That should keep everybody going over Christmas if you've got some time. Lots of reading. The other thing is you love to listen to podcasts. And one question we get all the time from listeners is, I've listened to everything that you've done so far. I love podcasts. What else would you recommend? What are the couple that you would recommend? Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Invest Like the Best by Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Uh, I think he's, he, he gets some really interesting uh, investors, but also business leaders. You know, the recent one, um, they had the CEO of Spotify, um, which, which I thought was really fascinating. Uh, they also had the founders of Instagram on that podcast, which I thought was a really excellent one. And the other second one, which I would recommend is Business Wars. Uh, this is a new podcast that I came through, uh, and it contrasts the war between two titans. So, you know, there's episodes on the business wars between Nike and Adidas between Facebook and Snapchat, 
Um, you know, there's one between Pepsi and Coca-Cola. And so if you're interested in businesses like I am, you'll just love this. You can listen to this again and again. That's just brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Amit produces some great insights pieces and Fidelity has exceptional quality investing information. If you want to keep up to date, you can go to the Fidelity website in Australia and you can also subscribe to Amit's thought piece, which is called From the Desk Of, which is available on that site. Amit Loder from Fidelity International, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.